0: welcome everyone. I'm very pleased to be here tonight to chair this event, Tuition Fees, Do They Assist Access. I'm the General Secretary of LSE Students Union, Nona Buckley Irvin, and I'm delighted to welcome back LSE alumnus and former General Secretary of the Students Union Martin Lewis, quite a few years ago now. Um, He set the bar very high for General Secretaries at LSE, as he's now best known as the money-saving expert. Apparently, he's the UK's most Googled man. Apparently. Um, apparently. And he was previously head of the Independent task force on Student Finance Information. Tonight, he's going to be debating the statement, Tuition Fees assist Access, with Nick Barr, Professor of Public Economics at LSE, who has been described as one of the architects of student loans and tuition fees, and in particular, of the reforms in 2006. Tuition fees remain a topical issue for both students and the institutions, universities, who house them. When I started university, fees were around £3,500, and now a home EU student can expect to pay £9,000 a year. The arguments for and against this range from the pragmatic, regarding how the system actually works, to the ideological, about how fees influence the higher education agenda at universities and the commodification of education. Central to the debate around tuition fees is whether they've encouraged more students from low socioeconomic backgrounds to go to university. Well, I'll save comment for now and allow Nick Barr to open this debate, it's certainly a crucial issue that will remain on the agenda for the foreseeable future. There is also a little consensus on whether fees have worked. Only a few months ago did students take to the streets in favour of free education, and LSE Students' Union itself voted in favour of free education. I hope that this evening will serve as an opportunity to explore these ideas further and get some answers to these questions that tuition fees raise. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is LSEfees. I would ask you to please put your phones on silent so as to not disrupt the event. This evening's event is being recorded, thanks Nick, and will hopefully be made available as a podcast, subject to no technical difficulties. As usual, after the lecture, there will be the chance for you to put your questions to both speakers. But now, I invite Professor Nick Barr to begin with his opening remarks.
1: I was told hit the escape key, and I I'm all would be revealed. Ah, okay. Great. Sorted. Right. Good evening, everybody. It's a it's an enormous pleasure to be here with Martin. We we talked about this 20 years ago when he was general secretary of the student union, and I was an academic governor, and we've taken every opportunity to talk about it since then. What I want to do is to kick things off by clearing some stuff out of the way. Um, my starting point was when I was first... It was first suggested to me I write about student loans in the 1980s. I thought that student loans were a nasty right-wing Margaret Thatcher-type plot, and I didn't like the idea at all. And it was one of those interesting things where the arguments turned me around 180 degrees. Um, the 2006 reforms that have been mentioned brought in tuition fees of £3,000 a year covered by income contingent loans um, those reforms increased the size of the maintenance loan and brought back grants and excuse me start again
2: it's Tony Blair saying thank you that's wrong.
1: Right. <laughs> um, as the blurb for tonight's event says, I was, I-, I was involved in designing that system. I supported it. I still support it. The 2012 reforms, I absolutely refuse to be put in the position of defending the current incoherent mess. I put a, a rude word into my notes, but remember that this is probably going to be podcast, so I thought I'd better behave myself. But uh, feel free to choose any rude word you like to describe the current system. What I hope we can do, this PowerPoint is being difficult. What I hope we can do is to agree about a few things. First of all, since we're mostly LSE folk, I hope we can agree that getting the social science right is important. Secondly, I hope we can agree on objectives. Um, Three objectives. Quality of higher education, access, widening participation. Those two are obvious and we don't need to discuss them. But there's a third objective, size. We need a higher education system that is large enough for a modern society in which having a large number of highly skilled people matter. Now, if we agree on those objectives of quality, access and size, then what we're arguing about this evening is not the what- that we're trying to achieve, but the how? By what method do we get to it? So I'm going to argue that a strategy for achieving all three of those objectives has got three elements. For those of you who think about these things, if you've got three objectives, you really need three instruments for dealing with them. First of all, to promote quality and size, universities should be financed from a mix of taxation and variable fees. That's fine and dandy, but students are broke. They can't afford to pay fees. So, the second element is loans that cover fees and living costs and are large enough to make higher education free for students. It's graduates who repay, students getting free. And the third element is policies mostly earlier in the system to widen participation. So, how do we widen participation? And that's really what I want to talk about. My bottom line is that what stops people getting to university is not having good A-levels, or the equivalent. So the access problem is not fees, it's not getting good high school graduation grades. The policies that widen participation are those that get people to good A-levels, so policies earlier in the system. And the link between fees and access is that if you spend less taxpayer money on university students, You've got more to spend on students earlier in the system, and that's a much more powerful way to widen participation. So, the evidence is now very powerful. There's something I call pub economics. Pub economics is something that's obviously right, and everybody knows it's right, but it's wrong. And pub economics argues that, quote unquote, free higher education widens participation, and pub economics is wrong. Two sets of arguments. First of all, early child development matters. There's now serious medical research, you know, medical researchers at Oxford, Lancet, etc., that what matters most is a child's first 1,000 days from conception. So conception to age two. And that that strongly influences life chances, uh, the quality of life, and life expectancy. And... The evidence from the neuroscience, if you look at the diagram, you can see how much of a child's cognitive development happens uh, in the later months of pregnancy and the first year uh, of life. Um, That's the neurological evidence. The economic evidence this is um, work by James Heckman, Nobel laureate, so serious economist. It shows the returns to Spending on education by age. And the grey bar at the end is spending on prenatal care. Then you have very high returns, 0 to 3, preschool programs. It declines with age. And the the quote from James Heckman's work, the highest rate of return in early childhood development comes from investing as early as possible from birth through age 5 in disadvantaged families. Starting at age 3 or 4 is too little, Too late. Efforts should focus on the first years for the greatest efficiency and effectiveness. The best investment is in quality early child development from birth to five for disadvantaged children and their families. So what does the evidence tell us? Well, the message from the neurological evidence is invest early. The message from the economic evidence is invest early. This is probably one of the most frightening diagrams of all. Ignore the top line and the bottom line. There are tests of cognitive ability you can give to babies from 22 months onwards. And the top pair of lines is test scores. It's the test scores of the brightest 25% of babies from poor backgrounds. And the bottom left is the test scores of the least bright, 25% of babies from middle-class backgrounds. And the work tracked them. And you can see that the beige line comes down, and the dark pink line comes up. And by 72 months, six years old, middle-class investment in their children means they've overtaken the innate brightness of working-class kids if not enough investment takes place. And what this says is you've got to get in early and you've got to keep it up. So that's key message one, early child development matters. The second message is that school attainment matters because access to universities is determined mainly by what happens in schools. This diagram shows that a very high proportion of young people from rich backgrounds go to university and a very low proportion of young people from the poorest backgrounds and you think that's wicked, that's evil it's fees that are doing it you know, that right wing bastard who supports fees Wrong The problem is that 25% of young people from the richest background get good A-levels and only 3% from the poorest background It's not a rich poor problem it's an A-level problem and if I'm allowed only one diagram it's this one The top pair of bars, the left-hand pair of bars, shows that young people with the very best A-level scores, nearly 100% of them, go to university. The next pair show that young people with good A-levels, but not quite so good, about 90% go to university. So what this diagram shows is, (coughs) the better your A-levels, the more likely you are to go to university, which is obvious and deeply boring. But come back to the first pair of bars. Dark blue are young people from the top three socioeconomic groups. Light blue, young people from the bottom three socioeconomic groups. So what this says is, get them to good A-levels and you've cracked it. The socioeconomic gradient pretty much disappears if you control for education attainment. So. last slide, 2006 reforms, the ones that I supported and support. In 2004, 11% of young people from the most disadvantaged areas of the country applied to university. So in the year that higher fees were introduced, the the, the application rate from the poorest backgrounds was 11%. Higher tuition fees were introduced... The fees-harm-access argument said participation would go down. It didn't. It went up. And if I were better with um, Excel, I would have made the scales show the line more steeply. Participation went up from 11% to 19%. That's a 50% increase over six or seven years. And the people who did the research were sceptical about it. They said, you don't get such big changes over such a short period of time, they went back and tracked these young people's GCSE results and they all showed the same improvement as uh, the improvement in A-levels that led to improved participation. Why did this happen? Nothing to do with fees and loans, everything to do with policies introduced much earlier. Sure start to improve nursery education, the literacy hour, the numeracy hour. Education maintenance allowances which helped young people um, stay on at school um, beyond age 16 and aim higher which was information and raising aspirations. And this isn't just an English result, there's OECD results that show the same thing. So my argument, my final point is fees assist access by freeing resources to spend earlier in the system which is where the most powerful impediments to access occur. I rest me case, me luck. Martin, over to you. you
2: Um, I don't do the stats and the numbers in the way that Nick has, but I think it's worth just taking this back a step and going back to basics. And we've had this word free education mentioned a number of times here, but let's in a nice social science institution be very plain free education does not exist. All you have is education that is either paid for through general taxation or education that is paid for by the individual or something in between. So we need to get rid of this concept of free education. That's just free education towards the individual. That's not necessarily saying that I'm against it, but it's simply saying that the entire concept is flawed. If we go back to 1979, when I was seven, you weren't thought of, and Nick was 64, back in those days sorry mate uh, back in those days which many people say were the pinnacle of free education where many people demand this was what this is what we want in our society right now What you had is people went to university, they didn't pay a penny, they got huge whopping grants that meant they could live a relatively easy life on the back of it. And it was 2% of the population who went. And what it was is the general taxpayer paying for the children of the elite to go to university without paying a penny and to get grants on the back. Now I cannot, you know, as a centre-centre-left man, support that particularly. So we have to look at a system that we're in now where it's no longer 2%, it's not quite 50%, but let's call it nearly half of society going to university. For me, that's a better thing. We're not even going to get into the perspective here. We all want equality of opportunity. There are debates to be had over whether university education is worth it, whether apprenticeships are better than university education for some people, but we're going to leave those into the mix. We want more people in our society having the opportunity to go towards higher and further education if they can. So what's going to happen in this debate? I have to tell you, Nick and I are not at opposite sides of the seesaw here. I think we're on the same side, I'm just closer towards the middle than he is. There are points of disagreement and there are points of agreement. When I was General Secretary, I was heavily in favor of maintenance loans. Uh, I agreed with that. I thought it was good that you needed to support yourself while you're at university. And that was controversial at the time. We were moving from a grant system to a loan system. And that you should pay it, and you should repay it through an income contingent system, a system where you pay it like a form of taxation. An income contingent system has been a big help for many people. There are problems in how it's been administered, there are certainly problems if we continue to sell the debt and it's not managed properly, as we have already seen with the rodeo student loans, which has caused many people problems, though that wasn't the income contingent system. So where do I sit with tuition fees? When I was in your chair as General Secretary, I objected to it. Well, it was the right thing to do as General Secretary. I wouldn't have won the election if I hadn't. (laughs) Now, I have to say, I accept the idea that students should be contributing something towards their education. People who go to university earn more afterwards. What we have is effectively a no-win, no-fee system, if we're talking about win in financial terms. If you don't earn enough, you don't repay a lot. I am staggered by the number of people when I do phone-ins on the system, or whether it's television, on radio, the number of parents whose question is, I am petrified about my child going to university because if they do not get a good job, how on earth will they afford to repay the loan? Well, they won't have to. You only repay if you're earning 9% of everything but 21000 That's the point. I don't want my child welching on the loan. They're not. There is a defined contribution. One of the great mistakes, and I suspect you will agree with me, on the entire system, it isn't a loan. This is not a loan, nor is it a tax. It's a hypothecated system, and it needs to be a contract so you can take it outside the United Kingdom. I'm very strongly in favour of calling this a graduate contribution system. Because if you replace the explanation of this system, if you replace the word student loan with graduate contribution, you know, if you ask a parent, your child's going to be £50,000 in debt when they leave university, what are you going to do? Are you going to pay it for them so they don't leave it in debt? They're going to tell you yes. If you say to a parent... If your child leaves university and gets a good job, so they're earning a lot of money, the the fact that they went to university means they're going to have to contribute more back. Are you going to pay that for them? They'll tell you to get lost. So if you replace every form of the explanation of student loan with graduate contribution, what you start to get is a system that makes sense to the populace. The biggest objection I had to your presentation was your dismissing pub economics. Because this entire problem is about pub economics. You are, of course, right in that pub economics is wrong. But that doesn't stop the problem that pub economics exists. And when we talk about the Labour policy at the moment, which I am torn on, let's just move towards that. Let's go into, you know, 2015, general election, Labour saying drop tuition fees to £6,000. Right, we're in the London School of Economics. Let's talk about what the actual impact of doing that is. You repay 9% of everything you earn above £21,000. Supposedly from 2017 that will be uprated with average earnings each year. There has been talk about that being stopped. The government promised me it wouldn't be stopped. No, you, you, let, me, no to, let me challenge you on that. <laughs> students were told it would be uprated in 2017. Okay. You might argue that going forward it should be stopped for right, new okay. students. Yeah. A retrospective change yeah, is, okay. of, is not, yeah. oh, but no, okay. and I, I didn't think you would agree with it. Right, so the point is for people who believe that was what was going to happen, you should stick with the system you were told when you got a contract to get a loan. That cannot be changed. You want to change it in the future? I mean, I've in fact told the government if they do change it retrospectively, I, as a nice mainstream man, I'm not the NUS, will organise protest in the street. And I've written that as a direct threat, they're very well aware of it, because they promised me when I was explaining this system, as the man in charge of explaining this system in 2012, I have written promises that it would be uprated in 2017, or the calculations were based on that fact. If that is changed retrospectively, you cannot, no private country, company can go back and change a loan contract unilaterally, and nor should the government be able to. If they want to change the system going forward, that's a wholly different matter. But let's just go back to Labour policy. 9% of everything above 21,000, and you repair it for 30 years. If we assume that a typical graduate will have salary rises of 3% above inflation each year during their career, and actually it's less than that on average because women take much time out and their salaries don't go up as high, and so there is a, there's a gender balance, but we'll move out of that. Then here's the math. The only people who would repay in full their loan and interest under the current system on a £6,000 a year tuition fee loan plus a standard maintenance loan are those on starting salaries, starting salaries of £35,000 a year and then going above inflation, 3% above RPI every year after that. That That is, city lawyers, city accountants and city traders and very few other people. Labour's policy will only save those people money in practice. So what you have is a policy that is designed to take the the sting out of higher education which in fact is only benefiting the extremely affluent people. Great for LSE graduates, not great for the people it's really trying to target. One of the great confusions we have in this entire issue is Who is rich? Am I rich if my family is rich and I go to university and get a low-paid job afterwards? Or am I rich if my family is poor, I go to university and get a high-paid job afterwards? Which one of those is the rich people we don't want to help in this scenario? And that confusion about affluence and background and wealth and background is one of the great problems in this. Labour's policy helps those people who do well out of university afterwards do very, very well. But here's your pub economics problem. The problem with £9,000 tuition fees is it's a psychological deterrent to going to university for people from non-traditional university backgrounds. And your bar, your Nick bar, in fact, as it went down, I agreed with the top A-level students, but the further you went down, the gap started to increase. And, this ni- and when you've got those people at the cusp, you've got the people at the cusp, when we've got near 50% participation rates in university, that's where Labour's policy has some merit. Currently. My great objection to this entire thing, I ran the Independent Stat- Task Force on Student Finance Information. We were the... the Minister for Universities at the time, David Willits, asked me to set it up um, as a government body. I refused because I didn't support the changes and I wasn't going to head a government body on this. It had to be independent. We did it independently. We had the NUS involved. We had universities involved and we were arm's length of government. They had somebody sitting there to observe and to provide information, but we were arm's length. Our budget for that campaign, which was to target all 2012 starters and their parents and the year after, was £70,000. Frankly, if I hadn't contributed by getting my own website to build all the tools, and probably cost me about 150 grand personally to do it, we would never have got anywhere. And we did a good job. We changed minds. Now, if you look at the actual cost of what's going on, of selling these loans, and the cost of getting this system wrong that they have in 2012, if they'd put 20 £30 million pounds into educating the entire populace over how this bloody scheme works, over calling it a graduate contribution system then we'd have no problem with your pub economics because people would actually understand it and get it. I did a TV programme, ITV, 8 o'clock Friday night between Coronation Streets. I have the luxury of having that audience. And I did it where I sat with a woman who was virtually in tears about a child going to university telling me she was going to mortgage her house, remortgage her house, so her child didn't have to get a student loan. Let's just do a compare and contrast LSE. Typical mortgage rate, her level was 45 to 5% interest. She would pay it each year. If she can't pay it, they can take her house from her. If she loses her job, they can take her house from her. If her income drops, they can take her house from her. Student loan, the interest rate is set at the rate of inflation or higher if you earn more. If you lose your job, you don't have to repay it. It wipes after 30 years. It does not go on your credit file. The more you earn, the more you repay. The less you earn, you less repay. I know which loan I would prefer. And the idea of adding to your mortgage to bail your child out because they're going to go to university and may have to pay money back if they get a good job, that is the status that we are in. So for me... Well, on many principles apart from interest which we can discuss later Nick thinks interest should be charged, I hate the idea of interest being charged on the loans In principle and in, in theory you are right In practice at the moment tuition fees are a deterrent to many people they shouldn't be Education and a change of society and a change of name are the answers And you cannot have this in an academic bubble without starting to look at how do we get people to understand how the system works. And if we don't do that, well, all the graphs
1: in the world won't solve this problem. So that's my opening. I mean, let me respond to that, and I, I mean, I agree, we, there is a lot we um, agree on. Public economics is important out there in practice. I said, this evening, we're mostly LSE, this is what the analytics tell me. This is why I take the view. I do. I agree. Names are absolutely important. I told Tony Blair, call it a graduate tax, because then people will get it. They will realise that loan repayments, they will shift loan repayments from the credit card bit of their brain to the payroll deduction bit of their brain. Um, but at the time, the T word was an anathema. You couldn't call anything a tax because uh, uh, it was simply, uh, simply not done. So call it a graduate tax. Call it a graduate contribution is important. It isn't a tax. J- j- just we're in conversation. No, no, it's not a it's tax. It's not a tax for two reasons. No, I agree. I, yeah. I, no, no, it's not a tax. But I'm saying call it a graduate tax because then people will, will get it. <laughs> but the point that... I'm, I mean, I make points very similar to yours. When people say to me you bastard, you know, how can you make us repay £50,000? My response is that young people have no idea how bad it really is because alongside the £50,000, there's the million quid in income tax and national insurance contributions a typical graduate will pay over the course of their career. And I did those sums several years ago and it's probably now £2 million. Um,
2: Just just to interrupt, because we're now in the interrupted bit. bit. I don't think this issue is young people. Phil, all the work I've done and yep. all the outreach, this issue is parents. It is parents who are scared of this debt. You go and talk to bright 17, 18-year-olds, yep. even, and I, I've been, and been into the schools with low participation rates, those kids don't give a monkey. They want to go to university, they're going to university, and you know, the whole big issue that we've got is lack of financial education, they're short-term anyway. That's not really the problem. This is parents' who ask questions like, how will my child get a mortgage yes. if they have a student loan? I mean, just as a, a little counter on that, if we contrast the 2012 changes, and not that I'm trying to sell them to you at all, uh, pre-2012 you repaid 9% of everything above 15000 and your borrowing was much lower. Post-2012 you repaid 9% of everything above 21000 If you actually contrast the system, while you had a, a bigger loan and you'd be repaying it for a lot longer the reduction in your disposable income in the 2012 system is much lower. So in the first 10 years or so after university, when you would be repaying the loan under both systems, you're better off in 2012, you'd be easier to get a mortgage because you've got more disposable income and it's done on earnings multiples. Not quite anymore, it's done on affordability, but let's the same type of concept. Once you would have repaid your pre-2012 loan, and you would still be repaying your 2012 loan, it is then better under the old system than the new system. But having done a lot of work on the balance, actually, the new bigger loans in 2012 were much of a muchness for getting a mortgage. And it doesn't go on your credit file anyway, but they do ask them about it. But you try telling people that the fact that tuition fees have been increased from £3,000 to £9,000 a year, and it won't actually impact the ability of your child to get a mortgage in in the round... You can't get that through, because people just see. And the newspapers, I'm a journalist, I'm a, I cannot tell you how many newspapers I'd be rating, even on my own pieces, when the sub-editors change it to student loan debt of £50,000, what will you be in? And the first line says, of my articles always start... Don't believe the headlines or the political spittle. The, the £50,000 figure is a load of nonsense. What you've got to focus on is how much you'll repay. But they still put the, the introduction and the headline to the article to say that. So we have... It's interesting. My view, and I'm a communication professional, effectively, my view is this is a communication problem. Absolutely. More than it is an academic problem. Although what was happened in 2012 was just ridiculous because... It, the whole balance was done incorrectly. If you're going to start charging people more, at least get some extra cash into the exchequer for doing so, and that's not going to happen. They got the sums wrong.
1: I mean, I, mean, cup, cup, I mean, a quick response when you say it's parents, not young people, completely agree. And the line I take with parents is I say, do you lie awake at night worrying that your kid's going to have a, a large tax bill in future? and they gobble at me as though I was slightly batty because if their kid's gonna have a large tax bill it means they're making a lot of money and there's nothing to worry about. So I completely agree. I'd like to come, rather than talk about detail, there is a fundamental point that I want to raise and that's to ask the question, what is the purpose of student loans? Now, widening participation is one objective and to achieve that you need redistribution. And I support redistribution targeted at the activities that widen participation. In fact, I don't just support it, it's utterly essential. Student loans are a device for what economists call consumption smoothing. They're a device for redistributing to your young student self from your older, higher earning self. Now, because when you buy a house, the house acts as security, so the market will provide a decent deal for you most of the time. When you borrow to get a degree it's risky because you don't know how much you're going to work. So good consumption smoothing needs some insurance built into it. Income contingent repayments protect, give insurance to people with low earnings this month. Forgiveness after 30 years gives people insurance against low lifetime earnings. But the purpose of loans is consumption smoothing. So all graduates except those with the lowest earnings should repay their loan in full, in present value terms. Loans are not a device for widening participation. They spend money the wrong way for doing it. So the reason we might disagree about the threshold, I take the point about retrospection, 21,000 is too high because up to 60% of graduates don't repay in full, That means that student loans cost the taxpayer a fortune. That means that the Treasury caps student numbers. Now, rationing student places, quite apart from it being wicked, is unbelievably stupid in terms of national competitiveness. You can hear them sniggering in South Korea. So I think the fundamental point, and I want to test whether we agree or not, is what the purpose of loans is because that then determines how they ought to be desired. I think... The element that's missed
2: out of talking about, you know, if I was given the choice, if I were the Labour Party now and I wanted to have a genuine argument of something that would help people, I'd put the threshold up and keep the tuition fees the same. I mean, purely on the basis, if you put it at 12% of everything above £30,000, then you'd have high-earning graduates paying more, effectively, but a much higher threshold before you start. Now, it counters what you say. But we have to have this national debate about where we set the line. Who gains from education? Three elements, primarily. The individual, the economy and the taxpayer, and businesses. Now, getting into the idea of businesses contributing directly is a tricky one because what they would simply do is have much higher graduate unemployment if you did that. So we probably avoid that, and we can do that through general taxation anyway. So you have a simple choice between the taxpayer and the individual, I have no problem with the taxpayer contributing to a higher education sector in the UK. All we are arguing over is where we put the pendulum. That, but you've got to do it and understand the maths before you start it. And certainly that's the problem that has happened recently. I, I, again, back in 2012 when I first built my calculator... I was debating saying most people would not pay off in 30 years, and I I wimped out and said many. But it now looks like we're going to be getting close to most people will not pay off. And yet the government figures were a fraction of that, and I could never understand this. Nor My chaps who built the calculator with me, we all go, I don't understand how the government figures could be so low. Well, they were wrong. It was that easy.
1: They were wrong. They they made the assumptions that gave them the answer they wanted politically. And it was obvious to you and me and other people at the time that that it was a load of nonsense. Can I just come back to the point about you've got no objection to the taxpayer contributing? Mm -hmm. Completely agree. Again, I mean, if we come back to fundamentals, higher education benefits the individual and it benefits society. The individual should pay his or her benefit and the taxpayer should pay society's benefit. Set aside the fact that these things are hard to measure. So you say the tuition fee should cover the individual benefit, the loan should... and Sorry, the individual should pay his or her private benefit, can't do so up front, does so via the loan, and all graduates repay in full their private benefit via the loan except those with low lifetime earnings then you're getting the taxpayer bit in the right place. It is a taxpayer subsidy to teaching, which we haven't talked about, but I think we agree is absolutely fundamental, so that tuition fees are lower. So taxpayer money goes, one, to contribute to teaching, and two, the insurance element for graduates with low lifetime earnings. So I'm just trying to sort of say there are separate purposes. You're moving us back to...
2: Back to where we were in 2006, 2007, effectively. And, and one of the great arguments. Yeah. That, I mean, I again, was, yeah. an, another one that the public don't get. And, and it's just... There it is a massive financial illiteracy problem going on here, in, including by journalists as well. Because what people say is, under the new system, if so few people are going to repay back, surely it's going to cost fortunes more than it used to do so. Now, I'm going to hugely oversimplify and Nick could go into a lot more detail. But when it was £3,000 tuition fee, a university for your education got £3,000 that was hypothecated from you to the university and it got a grant for teaching you as well. They got rid of the grant and put it all towards the individual. Now, in all the language and the debate that you hear about this, people forget about that grant. Now, actually, the maths works out, I think it's... You'd have to have its 48% non-repayment before it cost the exchequer more under the 2012 system than the prior to 2012 system. And we're currently at 46% non-repayment. So it has been a tiny bit beneficial to the exchequer. But I don't think any politician would agree that for the extra 2% it was worth the political spittle fight and lack of popularity. Had it been at 25%, which is where they roughly were, that would have been a much, much better outcome because then you'd been talking about saving billions of pounds. But let nobody forget, in the old days, universities used to get cash direct from the government. Uh, The one thing neither of us have talked about, and probably important for you as well, is... ...the marketisation of university... ...which was one of the great philosophical tracts ...that came out from David Willits especially... ...about tuition fees. The idea that we need to have a marketplace... ...where different courses have different fees... ...that has fundamentally failed. Pretty much every university charges £9,000. The LSE was uh, was the only Russell Group University... ...not to do it in the first year... ...but then everybody else did it, so why not? And actually, under this argument... Uh, and, and this is where they got it all wrong. Why wouldn't you charge your students £9,000 if only the ones who earn a lot afterwards will pay any more on a £9,000 course than a £6,000? In 2012, I was out there saying, talking to kids, writing booklets that said, don't choose your course based on the fees. It's a fundamental flaw. Because again, we heard them, you heard the maths before, £35,000 starting salary. Only then will you pay more on a £9,000 course than a £6,000 course. So there was no marketisation, okay. because effectively only rich students ever paid more on more expensive courses. So why, And rich students, more expensive courses at the time tended to be, be, tended to be better universities and stronger courses, so you were going to be a more affluent student. So why wouldn't you go to a university with a higher fee if that was the right course for you? Uh-oh. So the whole idea was flawed. But, I mean,
1: several things. There is one argument about is bringing more competition in a good idea... A separate argument is, that's what the government was trying to do. Why didn't raising the fees cap to £9,000 do it? Why do all universities charge £9,000? And there's two reasons. One is, because the way the loan is designed, my students at Balls Pond Road Technical College, with low earnings, cause the government a large loss on student loans, but I don't have to pay that, so why not charge 9,000? The second reason is student numbers are capped. It's a shortage economy, there's excess demand. So, of course, everybody's going to go to 9,000. So, one of the subsidiary reasons for me wanting a loan that is not fiscally incontinent is that it will enable the numbers cap to come off permanently systems can expand then there isn't a shortage of places and I think that and adjusting the loan and you will start to get price differentiation
2: I'm not sure I want price differentiation I'm not sure the marketization of university is necessarily a good thing I think the idea that I contribute towards my education is fine but once we start to To look about exactly how this works. Now we could do it through general taxation and teaching grants coming in differently, but I'm not sure that somebody going to LSE should necessarily pay more than somebody who is going to whatever the technical college that you mentioned. I actually think that you you have an amount that you you pay to go to higher education. We don't start building it in with a class level, which is what fees, fees run the risk of doing that you've got a poorer course, it's got less resources, it's coming back. Ultimately if we're going to have higher education and if we're going to have mass participation and if we're going to expect it to improve our economy then we need to make the teaching at every level and every course good enough to serve what we need I think we'll both agree that we don't have that right now one of the great problems we have people doing the wrong type of courses and the idea of freeing up student numbers you can free up student numbers but we also if the the economy is going to contribute then you have to make sure that the courses are right for the economy too and I think we have a misbalance right now we have people Studying courses that are not particularly good for them, not particularly good for their future and not particularly good for our economy. We have a massive, massive problem within careers advice in the UK. You hear parents telling their children not to take mathematics or engineering because what type of job are you going to get? Take mathematics and engineering. That's the type of job that you should be doing so. So within the idea, my worry is... But, but you, is the, the whole thing is so out of kilter that once you start putting
1: a price on it, it gets even worse. We're, we're, we're worrying about the same thing. The question is how you get there. First of all, I mean, you're saying everybody should pay the same. I mean, I could say... No, I'm and, saying fees should be the same. Sorry, fees the same. Sorry, yeah. Um, all right, let, let me not talk about mythical places. It seems to me immoral to charge students at London South Bank the same as students at LSE. They're getting fundamentally different things.
2: Did you agree that when it was £3,000?
1: I always thought that £3,000 was a stepping stone to variable fees. And I'm in favour of variable fees, partly for the reason I've just given, partly because objective of quality. We haven't talked about quality assurance. Part of quality assurance is having, a, having competition with, within a regulated framework, etc. And the best form of quality assurance, and this is essentially what you do, the best form of quality assurance is giving people good information. So I think having a competitive environment for higher education, together with giving future students the right information, and I've got views and we can talk about that, is a better way to go. The way you make it possible for London South Bank to charge lower fees, it's partly competition, it's partly... If you were were to say London South Bank should get a larger (coughs) taxpayer subsidy than LSE, I'd agree with you. So I'm not saying... I, I agree there should be differential taxpayer subsidies, but there should be differential fees as well. Where
2: I struggle goes right back to my initial point. I think you're trying to perfect a system on a theoretical basis. And I struggle to accept your arguments when we have such fundamental misunderstanding of the system. Okay? And, and, and I live in the practical people come and ask me what should I do with my kids' world. That's my world. You know, write me an article. Should I send my kids to university? Is it going to be really expensive? How will they get a mortgage? That's my world so the worry about if we introduce variable fees now and genuinely variable fees not the, the system we have at the moment where they're not variable in truth what you will get is parents of children from non-traditional university background being risk averse and sending them to cheaper courses rather than the course that they should go to now I'll, I'll accept and that. that's my problem okay
1: I agree with you that if that were true, it would be a problem. I agree with you that it is true. The question is, how do we fix it? Now, communism tried to protect the poor... <laughs> that's, a big, that's a big move. <laughs> <laughs> Think big, we're <with> the LSE. <laughs> communism tried to protect the poor by making things cheap for everybody, and it was the wrong way to do it. If you want pair kids from poor... But if, I mean, I take your point that the gap is larger lower down, it's a problem, it needs to be fixed. Having the same fees for everybody is a very blunt instrument. There are targeted policies that ought to be aimed at groups like that. When I said participation is much more a 0 to 18 problem than an 18-plus problem, I didn't mean that there isn't an 18-plus problem. There is. And the question is, what does one do? There's a lot of things you can do. Sort of the information that you're sort of such a hugely important part of is one thing. Another thing is giving people low-cost experiments. So part-time options. So you stay in your home, you stay in your job, you do a three-unit course in the evening to see whether you can hack it. Enormously important. Full first-year scholarships for people from poor backgrounds to go to Oxford. Once they've been there for a year and they find that they love it, then they can do the rest on loans. Um, there is a huge. to not defeat your entire, the entire philosophy of an income contingent system. No, because what I mean that was
2: the
3: fee no, no, way no, thing no, 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 didn't no, no, work.
1: Income contingency works where people are vaguely rational. Where there are some people who won't take out a loan, even if, in your excellent phrase, it's no win, no fee. And this is sometimes sloppily called debt aversion. And in my view, it's not better version, it's risk aversion. It's exactly what you say. But what people are mostly risk averse about is am I good enough to hack it? Which is why giving them a low cost experiment is the way to do it. So rather than saying have the same fees for everybody, I would say look at this gap and look at policies that directly uh, improve things for these people.
2: We already have a system whereby the contribution to your education. Effectively, and and, and forgive me for... And I'm not making the assumption that the only benefit of a university education is how much you earn afterwards. It it very much isn't that. I'm a great believer in it for many other reasons. But let's take it when I say no win, no fee, that we're talking about money here. We already have a system where the more you financially gain from your university education, the more you pay. You're effectively adding a level of gearing to that by, by changing the fees on top of it... So that it's, it's accelerated. And I'm just not convinced that that's necessary. And what I find fascinating here is when I object because of the, the pragmatics of the situation, i.e. people are risk averse, your sol- solution, if you forgive me, is to bastardise your own system by saying that we should have fee waivers in the first year, which makes no sense to me. Uh, because ultimately, if we say that I will, if I'm successful after university, I then financially then I will pay a lot, then the fee waiver makes no difference. If I go to Oxford and I don't gain financially on the back, I won't pay anything, or I mean, or, or go to LSE for an even better degree, and I don't gain on the back, I won't pay anything. But if I do earn a lot, I will repay a lot. So I find that I find that
1: an inconsistency in your I, approach. I, I mean, I, I, I... Does anyone Same else? you? That, to you're, 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 yeah. you're, you're now being the purist and I'm being the pragmatist and saying, yes, a price should be a price and a loan should be a loan. No, I'm not but being... I'm saying, I,
2: I'm saying that you, you can't design a system, you can't start to design a system around a purist base then make up And your argument on variable fees is on a purist not? base. Well, you can do it, I disagree with it. But your argument is on a purist base. My, I come from a practical side right now, and in some sense it's a principled side. Um, of how we need to operate this, and my view is, we've got to fix the, the knowledge gap first. I agree I know, completely. I, and, and I, I don't no, think we should be doing. Any, and, and I don't think we should be doing anything else before we fix the knowledge gap. That's the most important thing in this system. I have to say, on the change of name, no politicians will do it. When I first got the task force, they asked me what I thought, and I said to them, it was 2012. I said, do not change the name this year. You change the name this year, people yeah. will just call it spin. This is the worst possible year yeah. to change it. Give it two years. And I wrote two years yeah. later, exactly two years later, I then yeah. wrote my piece on why we should change the name yeah. now. Because people get it now. And it is the right, before they do any more changes, change the blooming name. And one, that's the start point to the whole, everything else that we're talking about. But on, on your purest base, I just, I struggle. Either you go one way or you go the other. And, and I agree, I, I'm, I accept there are inconsistencies in my argument. I hate the idea of charging real rates of interest to students. Even though I am fully aware that because of the way the system works, the vast majority of them won't pay any interest at all because they won't repay enough to repay their capital in real terms, never mind the above inflation rates of interest. And I know you're a fan of having it in real terms. I think I can just about cope, having been an ex-General Secretary of the LSE, with the concepts of students contributing to their education I can't cope with the concepts of student, students having to contribute also to the cost of financing the cost of their education. And in principle I would have it at an at an inflation neutral cost. I would say you don't pay real interest. I really want
1: to interest. make one response to Of course, of course. Just to say partly to help discussion, I think there are two sets of debates going on. One is what do the principles tell us. And the other is, given those principles, how do we get from here to there, bearing in mind that the real world is full of public economics? And I now miss a very good friend of both of ours, Ian Crawford, who was my political partner in crime in the run-up to the 2006 um, Reforms, whom, whom Martin knew well as well. Ian was a hardball political pro and I did the principles and Ian did the politics and we got a good result in 2006 because of the teamwork. And I think what you're seeing in our debate, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, I hear a lot of Ian and me with endless hours of discussion I, I, over I, I, Well, it was a great
2: compliment to be proxying for Ian, so thank you very much.
1: And just, just one point on the interest rate, just to come back to, it goes back to what the purpose of a loan is. A loan is a device for allowing people to redistribute it themselves. The interest rate, I'm saying... So, so I'm saying loans should ideally cost the government nothing. That means that graduates should be repaying an interest rate equal to the government's long-run cost of borrowing. So it's, it's, it's the long-run government bond rate that I'm talking about, not a rate above that. Um, inflation, if students can borrow, and the interest rate is the inflation rate, That's less than it costs the government to borrow the money. And something like 30% of all lending to students never comes back, goes down the gurgler, just because of the difference between the zero real and the long-run bond rate. So that's... I mean, we, we needn't debate this tonight, but that's why... that's what I think and why... the reason why I think... Sorry.
0: Great. Thank you both for a very lively debate. I hope there are some challenging questions there in the audience. I'll be taking three at a time. Just say your name and where you're from. We know that will be great. So, do we have any questions?
1: Don't be shy.
2: What will happen is someone will No one will ask now, and at the end there'll be loads of hands up. So do it now. What was it at the start?
0: Great. Um, hi there. My name's Jessup from the Higher Education Commission. Um, I was wondering, um, Nick, you said at the start of your talk about how um, students don't pay back loans, graduates pay back loans. I was wondering if you see some of the proposals that have come out of Scottish universities proposing refunds to students who don't pay back their loans. Do you think this is a fairer method for students or if it's just a move to more marketisation of higher education?
1: Sorry, what do students who don't repay their loans?
0: They don't pay their loans if they don't graduate. They're offering a refund to English students for Scottish universities who don't graduate for whatever reason.
1: Ah, yeah, right, yeah.
3: Uh, Hello, I'm Brian Harding. Uh, My wife and I have two daughters. My wife came to the LSE and we looked very closely at student uh, fees since they were introduced. Unfortunately, our eldest daughter was the first year when fees were introduced and we thought, knickers, we just got caught. £1,000, we thought that was awful. The second year, oh, we've got a little bit of inflation, £1,000.56, and 56, and then a year out we had to pay half fees. And then we've seen the way that fees have gone up, £3,000, and we thought we were really lucky. And then when the 9000 fees were introduced, we thought that is horrendous, but not all universities were going to charge it. And then we realized that universities said, we're going to undersell ourselves unless we all make £9,000. So, and we are persons that have sort of gone through life and we've seen the sort of trials and tribulations that young people have to go through. Um, And you mentioned mortgages, which is one thing, but the other thing that is really relevant at the moment is pensions. No one is saving into pensions. So we can't possibly see how anybody can repay these loans. And although, Martin, you're saying that it doesn't matter whether you have to repay the loan, but we know that psychologically a lot of people and a lot of parents and grandparents would be very concerned that there is a debt hanging over their children. And I know that we as parents, although we logically... It hadn't been need to be repaid. We would think we can't saddle them in that debt. And we hear more and more that people are actually, the parents and grandparents, are paying these debts. Can Um, Can
2: I just use you as a test bed, if everybody forgives me for a moment, interrupting? Brian, let's change the name. Let's change it right now. So let me describe to you a new system. Forget everything you've just said to me. You and your children have obviously passed going to university age now, but let's, let's pretend we're not there. So we've introduced a brand new system. It's called the Graduate Contribution. There is no loan. I've just scrapped loans. I'm the Minister for Higher Education. Thank you very much. And I've scrapped the loan system. What I've said is I'm going to introduce a system where you effectively pay more tax when you leave. Up until including as long as you pay back the cost of your university education, which we have demarked is roughly £9,000 a year. So when you leave university, you'll pay a higher rate of tax as long as you're earning on earnings above £21,000. And that higher rate of tax we're going to call your graduate contribution. If you don't earn above £21,000, of course you won't contribute anything. If you do earn above £21,000, you will contribute more. But you will only do that until you've repaid back roughly the cost of your education, or you hit 30 years, and then your contribution will stop. There's no loan. It does not go on your credit file. It's effectively a 9% increase in your income tax, above £21,000. We're going to call it the new graduate rate, the graduate contribution rate of income tax. So if you earn above £10,000, until £10,000 as a graduate, you don't pay any tax, From £10,000 to £21,000, you pay the basic 21% tax. From £21,000 up until £45,000 or £43,000, roughly, you pay 30% tax, uh, 29% tax, rather, the 20% plus 9%. And above £43,000, you repay 49% tax. It's not, is it? Sorry, it's 54% tax, which is the 45% plus the 9%. So, basically, your child to go to university would have to pay a higher rate of tax, a higher graduate contribution afterwards, and we've never spoken about loans. Would that help?
3: It would help a little. It would make the stigma attached to it perhaps uh, much lower key, but we would then need to know initially how much sort of money it's going to cost, and we would project, project through the years as to what sort of tax that a particular daughter or son would be paying, be paying. Um. sorry, you can tell I'm a teacher. <laughs> that's what I did with my degree. Um, the majority of people, a very high percentage, meet their life partner at university. You've got double the debt.
2: I'm not sure that's true anymore. I have to say, but definitely well,
3: not. Um, so we've got children, and but
2: remember, it's we, we, we've very very abolished debts. I've abolished debt. I've abolished debt. Oh, yeah, it's you've a graduate contribution. Yeah. Yeah, I've got rid of the loan. It's determined. It's just, it's just, I've just increased tax. Yeah, it's
3: just. As, as I, soon as you go to a higher job, you don't get the benefit from it. But, but because you, the tax. Yeah, but but you yeah. do
2: no no. But I, I'm sorry. I'm, I know you're He's trying to move on, finished. but I think this is really fascinating about, and, and I think you're a reflection of what many parents worry about, and and that's why I think it's really interesting to explore this with you for a moment. First of all, I hear this a lot I have had people ask me should I reject a pay rise because it will move me into the 40% tax bracket forget graduate tax I'm going to move into the 40% tax bracket I currently earn 40000 they're going to put me up to £45,000 should I reject my pay rise because then I'll be a 40% taxpayer so well, Of course, people. of course so is the 9% you, you, you accept it with tax remember, you're saying it's not worth earning more of course it is you're losing 9% of the extra you get. You're not losing 100% of the extra you get. The more you earn, the more you take home, with or without, an income-contingent system. I, if you forgive me, and I hope you don't find this patronising because it's not my intent, I, I talk to many people who, who worry like you do, I think you need to switch your brain to how the system actually works. You wouldn't, Brian, go and work out... And if your daughter or son wanted to be a doctor... You wouldn't sit there and go, oh, they're going to be a high earner, I'm going to work out how much tax they're going to pay in a lifetime. And yet you're telling me you would do that for the extra contribution they'd make for being a graduate.
3: Well, the other thing is they're losing three or four years of their life when they could actually be earning money. So they're not going to be earning money until they're that much later. Um, And the jobs that are now available for graduates overall pay a lot less than, as you say, the 2% that used to go through university. So you hear a lot of people that will will say, go out and be a plumber, go out and be an electrician, because there is very good money to be earned, and they will earn it a lot earlier in their life than had they gone through university. I think the
2: is-it-worth-it question is very different to the how-do-we-fund-it question, and I think there's a lot of validity in what you say.
1: Can interesting,
0: I sh- sorry I'm just going to come in here show of hands, who here thinks that renaming the system to a graduate contribution would change how they feel about the student loans ok you're doing well you're doing well <laughs> and, and, can I, and how
2: many, what about and you, you asked how they would feel about it How? if I broaden, because we may have some people who are very clever academics and, or, and all understand this, how about how you feel society as a whole would feel about it can we see a show of hands for that? Hands up if you think society as a whole would change if the name changed.
1: It's roughly the same number of people. Am I allowed to say that changing the name, if the politicians are seen to do it, will be seen as spin by those lying bastards? And if we could somehow persuade someone to get you to do it as somebody who is not party political... And a trusted brand, I think that would be enormously important. But The point is, the government, when income contingent loans were introduced in 1997, the Blair government could have walked on water. They could have said, brilliant new loan system, graduate contribution, income contingent, uh, income, um, so graduate contribution, income related, payroll deduction, no debt, they could have done it. We've now got so much water muddied, it's, it's a big task that needs the, the, to be done. There's,
2: and there's another deliberate reason I want to change the name that is nothing to do with student finance whatsoever. In my day job, in when we introduced student loans in
1: 1990... 1990 was the
4: first, Mr Baker one, in
2: 1998... 23 eight, years was... ago. We started... Educating our youth into debt, and now educating our youth into what we call debt, and we have never educated them about debt until this year. I ran a big campaign to get financial education on the national curriculum, which we got in September. It, I, that's the one I want on my gravestone, okay. right? And, but the point is, what we did by student loans is we inured a generation to borrowing. We got rid of the stigma of borrowing and rid of the stigma of bad borrowing and we didn't teach people how to do it correctly in the first place. And what we have with student loans is a government-enforced system of borrowing because we call it a loan. So stop calling it a loan. Call it a graduate contribution and then start educating about the real loans that are out there. You know, mortgages, fair enough, you're going to have to get one. The rest of the loan, should you be borrowing or shouldn't you? But when we have enforced borrowing on our youth and we call it a loan even though it isn't really a loan... It isn't just dangerous for the student finance system, it's dangerous right across the consumer system in our country. That's the other reason I checked in there. Great. I mean there is the Jessica's
0: question. Yeah, I was gonna say should go back to the previous yeah, question. Yeah, I mean I mean
1: I mean I mean Jessica, if I understand your question you're saying should students who borrow but then not graduate get their money back? I I would see that as arguably the singest, most cruel thing you could ever do to young people. Because you are, at the end of the Easter vacation of your third year, coming into finals thinking, if I take my exams and I pass and I get a marginal 2-1, I might not get a hugely good job, but I've got this stuff to pay off, whereas if I duck out of finals, I don't. Now, I saw this as a tutor in the days when students at LSE had the option of postponing their second year exams till their third year. And that was a terrible thing to do, because it's a natural thing to think that if you've got more time, you'll do better. But it overlooks the fact that in the third year, you've got four more subjects to do and actually, it's, a very, it's not a kind thing to do to students. This is the same thing, but on a much larger scale. So I'd say, no, in kindness to students, don't go anywhere near that.
2: I had written down vested interest in failure. So yeah. roughly agree with Nick on, on the concept there. I think, I think there are perhaps some reasons. I think expulsion, um, and yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. death in the family, critical illness, all yeah. of those type of issues then I would support it. I think not getting a degree at the end, while well, you've had three years of study. One of the great problems of the marketisation of university is the shift of students to being consumers. Now, while I approve of that to how good is my accommodation, how many people am I actually sharing the class with, how, how is it as an environment to study in? I actually think that's something that's pretty decent. I'm paying for it, I want a decent service. Once that starts to cross over into, <laughs> no, no, sorry Nick, I don't want you to teach me that, I'm bloody paying for my course, I want you to teach me this, that's where we've crossed the line. That's where academics are there to lead
1: and to tell students how to study and to judge how well they have managed in their degree or not. I agree, um, I agree on the last point, but there is an intermediate point. I mean, Yes, of course students are entitled to, to have an informed view about the quality of their education. Yes, academics should lead on subject matter. But I can remember a very long time ago when there were no tuition fees, either for UK students or for foreign students, when university didn't really matter that much for life chances, when there was a staff table tennis table, when there was very little teaching in the summer term, when um, teachers didn't always turn up, uh, when there weren't any office hours. Now, today, so, so then 1980, we lost our taxpayer support for overseas students, which didn't matter for any British university that only had three overseas students, but for LSE with a tradition of a third or so of our students from other countries going back to the interwar years, it mattered a lot, and we went out and we did a bit of marketing, and students started bringing us checks, and guess what happened? We started to be nice to them. You know, if a student complained that um, a lecturer hadn't turned up, um, the director would beat up on the head of department and the head of department would beat up on the lecturer. Um, So I think that on process, competition has had demonstrable benefits on improving what we do. And I agree.
2: And that was the service-bled element that I meant. I think an independent quality assessment of the level of academic teaching. You want good teachers, and if your teachers aren't good, I think that's certainly a problem. But it isn't for me to start dictating, you know what, I don't want you to judge me on this. I want you to judge me on something else. Uh, I mean, I I did a paid postgraduate uh, in 1997-98, and I remember at the time, and I was 25, I'd come from LSE, I'd had a f- couple of years in the city, and I went to do a pe- postgraduate in broadcast journalism. And I did sit in that, that course, and uh, some of the other people were younger than me, a few were older, and I got shouted at by my, the, the head of the course. And he said, oh, whatever, and I turned around to him and said, whoa, 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 I pay to be here, you want to tell me something, you tell it me, you do not raise your voice to me. That is not an acceptable way to behave with me. Thank you very much. And I was paying that you know, proper money out of my own pocket. And I think that that is acceptable. Yeah. It isn't for me to tell him what's on the curriculum or yeah. how to grade me because I'm yeah. paying for yeah. it. Yeah. And I think that we have to be very careful in that nuance. Yeah. And that, and what you're talking about in Scotland, for me, starts to move into a dangerous direction of saying, oh, we didn't know. It starts to intervene with the academic integrity of an institution, potentially.
0: Great. More
4: questions. Hi, I'm Peter. I'm a student here. Um, I wanted to ask about the the repayment system and um, the effect of that on the cost to the the taxpayer, the, the cost to the government in the long run. Because, as I understand it, you can in the current system you can basically repay at any any time after graduation. So, consider the example of someone from maybe a wealthy background who. Whose family can afford to pay their their university education, or they can afford to pay it back within five years, say? We're basically banking on those people um, to subsidise the people who don't get a well-paid job um, through sticking with the system of 9 percent above twenty-one thousand. If if but if they look at that option after graduation, if they look at the options after graduation then they can be a lot better off in the long run if they repay early, if they have the ability to do so. No? Okay, so...
2: Not in my view, but... Shall we, we take more or do you want to answer that one? Yeah,
0: let's go this one. Okay,
2: first interesting. You said wealthy background, and again we need to remember wealthy background and high-earning graduate are not necessarily coming from the same set. The Venn diagrams may overlap, but I would say in many cases they also won't overlap. There are people from very wealthy backgrounds whose children go and work in charity jobs for the rest of their lives because they come from wealthy backgrounds. So it's not necessarily an overlapping Venn diagram. I think it's also worth remembering that it's high-earners who repay quickly. Now, if we take the system which says you pay RPI plus 3% at the highest end. Well, first of all, when, when people who have money come and ask me, should I just pay my kids' tuition fees for them? Right, it's, a, it's a very common question. There are also people who say, should I get a mortgage to pay my kids' tuition fees? Well, that's a no-brainer. Okay. Never. That's ridiculous. Well, my answer, not thinking of the taxpayer, because that's not my job. My answer is to think for the individual. Look let's take a very very easy extreme example here your child the reason you're thinking of paying is your child has told you they want to go and be a doctor right you know doctors have pretty good earnings after university your child goes and we'll we'll pretend it's isn't medical school and they're just doing a four-year degree or three-year degree to make it easy they go they get their degree you've paid off their tuition fees for them they leave university, they move to Africa to work for the Médecins Sans Frontières for £15,000 a year. They would never repay a penny. You've just thrown £27,000 away. Now, you may say, I want to contribute to it, but you've just thrown that money away. So my advice to people, I mean, I'm not talking Bill Gates here, but my advice to people in that situation is put the money in the highest interest savings account you possibly can until they graduate and you know what, prof- what profession they are likely to have, at that point, if they're likely to be a very high earner... ...you may be better off paying it off. If they're not, you probably won't be. Because remember, I go back to my point... pounds starting salary and above inflation rises to clear the whole thing. Well, you're not going to clear it in real terms. And the, the way you would clear the capital and not the interest... ...all gets a bit complicated. It's slightly lower down the pecking order. But there's another more important reason here. If you have £27,000 to give to your child when they go to university. If, if I were in that position, what I would do is I would save it for a mortgage deposit because yeah. that's the thing they're really gonna struggle with. Or save it so they don't have to borrow a car loan at nine or 10% where if they lose their job, they're gonna be chased. That's a much better use of the money. So the only people who really should be paying this off for their kids in advance are those whose children are going to get extremely good jobs, in which case, why bother? Let them pay for it, you've got your money. Or those people who are so wealthy that knocking £27,000 away, they may as well be going to buy it in a bottle of Cristal anyway, so why not bother? And apart from those people who are in the extreme, then I wouldn't do it. I mean, there's another little... It's actually really worth talking about the super affluent here. Because if you follow the curve of how much you repay... What happens is the more you earn when you leave, the more you repay, the more you repay, the more you repay, the more you repay, the less you repay, the less you repay, the less you repay, the less you repay. repay. So I'll explain this very simply. You repay 9% of everything you earn above 21000 And if you earn above forty-one grand, you're paying inflation plus 3% the highest interest. So you're an LSE man, you can do this. If I earned my first year's salary was a billion pounds, how quickly would I repay it? My first week. I'd repair my first week's salary. I'd repay all, everything I borrowed in my first week. So how much interest would have I have accrued? Nothing. Which is why the curve goes up, the more you repay, and then once you start to become a really high earner, because you repay it so quickly, less interest accrues, less above inflation interest accrues, you actually pay less. But I wouldn't change the policy because of that perverseness, because it affects so few people, I think we just shrug our shoulders and look at everybody else involved. Sorry, I stole no, 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 no,
1: no, no. I mean, I, I agree with everything you say. I just want to comment the anomalies you talk about are merely sort of items 37 and 38 about why the current loan design is barking mad.
0: Okay. More
3: hands? Hi, I'm Luke. I work at the University of West London. Um, so there's two parts to the loan a student takes. Half of it is you know, the tuition fee which we've been talking about, but the other bit is the maintenance bit. Since we moved to the new system, those from the lowest household incomes get quite a lot of free money in terms of the bursary, um, and they'll go to quite a lot to university with a lot of money to live on. Those who have medium and higher incomes as a household, they will get a lot lower, it's about £3,400. So the idea is that parents then start to give money. Are we seeing that that £3,500 is an access issue um, to students who can't actually afford... Though they might see the fees not as an issue, they might see actually living at university as an issue because they can't afford to pay for the accommodation. I just wondered if you had any kind of views on on that while we're talking about about the loans. Uh,
2: My biggest problem with the student loan system right now, and I have lots of problems with it, but number one on my list is loans aren't big enough. Number one, the maintenance loan is not sufficient to live off. And that is what causes student poverty more than anything else out there. And that has to be increased. And this, we go back to pub economics, you try and tell people the biggest problem with student loans is they're not big enough. You've got a problem, but that is the biggest problem. So the fund for access is important. It's interesting, I go back to what Peter said earlier, it's just a really, it's something you said in your language, and forgive me for picking on you, I don't, I'm not doing it in a nasty way. You talked about wealthy parents paying off their kids' money and wealth. And we're talking about a system of background. When you're 18 in this country, you vote. You're an independent adult. You pay tax. You can go to prison. You can get married without your parents' permission. Apart from pretty much hiring a rental car, you can do everything. But... The amount that you get to go to university does not depend on you, it depends on your parents. That's an anathema in our modern age. And actually, while I understand we have inherited wealth and rich parents will give their children money, right, I absolutely do understand it. As someone when I went to university whose father didn't give him... And I worked, so it was fine. My dad is not a cruel man. But he didn't give me the money that he was demarked to give me in that system. I got a proportional, a little bit of a grant, a little bit of a loan. He was meant to top up the rest, and he didn't give me the top up that I shouldn't have got. I have no way to force him to do that, right? So what you actually do here is you have an even more worrying problem that we have a parental contribution element to the student maintenance allowance And yet there is no enforcement that parents will actually contribute. So you have parents having a blocker on their children going to university because I can't afford that money. And that is based purely on income, it's not based on debt. And so certainly if you come from a family, which and there are a lot of them out there, who have high income and high debt and are in financial problems, your child may not be able to afford to go to university because we base their maintenance on, um, on parental income. So, yes, I think, certainly, of course, giving people from poor backgrounds direct access funds for maintenance will be a benefit. But we have a problem in that system, which, it's a very difficult one, because if you do it on a political basis, to say that Alan should, oh, look, I'm a rich man, to say that my daughter um, that my daughter should get exactly the same as everybody else, as someone from a poor background, even though she comes from a guy who's very, a family who's very wealthy. I get why people will object to that. But you have to have some enforcement within the system and some way of meeting it to be fair so that people aren't reliant on their parents if their parents aren't going to shell out. You know, make it the direct tax on me if you want. Make it an enforced contribution because it gets a, it's a very difficult philosophical basis, this over the age of 18 relying on parents. I mean, you, you, you had it as implicit. It depends what family you come from, I think.
1: I mean, I mean it, it's back to the models that come back from pub economics that says... Fees harm access, therefore you should have grants. And I remember Charles Clarke, one of the few really good education ministers we've had, losing his rag at an NUS debate. If I were a real socialist, he said, I wouldn't spend a penny on higher education, I'd spend it all on nursery education. And whilst I don't believe that literally, there's a very important grain of truth in that. What public economics says is, you take a lot of taxpayer money, and you pay it in grants to people who've got to university, who are the ones who largely have it made, and you're spending money on the best and the brightest at the expense of, the, of Sure Start, improving primary school education, education maintenance allowances, and Aim Higher, the last two of which most shamefully were abolished in the 2012 reforms. Now, that is the if you like, the main argument. There is then a a second set of more detailed arguments about the gap there, where I agree with Martin, there is a genuine problem. But this is a subtle problem, it's not one that you solve by having grants for everybody, which is spending a lot of money ostensibly to widen participation, politically presented as widening participation. That's spending money on the right thing in the wrong way on the wrong people.
2: I would take that grant money and put it into the EMA in a second yeah. without batting my eye. That was the biggest, the biggest kick in the teeth for participation yeah. in this country. It was an absolute horrid mistake. And actually I do think that there was a real problem that the tuition fee argument, which was a political football, was used... Um, and became, became the core celebra when the real problem was EMA, and actually I would have sacrificed and gone for almost to nine thousand tuition fees in a second to keep the EMA and I do think I would then have spent ten million quid, which is nothing it 's nothing on changing the name, rebranding and re educating across society in how the thing worked, and building us for a future of the next ten years. I mean there are still problems with the system, but you do those things which are a lot yeah. cheaper you would have a much better system. And again, we keep trying to fix something because people don't understand it. That's what we keep doing. And as long as you create policy based on fundamental lack of understanding, you've got a real problem. I mean, this is... Of course, it would be an outrage to compare it to what happened with MMR, right? Where people didn't inject their kid because of false information from a doctor who was talking bollocks. I mean, if you forgive the language. But we are getting to the point where we have people... Yes. And it's nothing as serious as that. But we're getting to the point where we have people who don't go to university out of a false fear. And the reason... i tell you something interesting. We were talking about Labour before to give them their plaudits. I spoke at Labour conference, and I challenged them. And this was in 2013. Well, actually, I'll, I'll give you two little stories while I like my little stories. The first of all is, I got slated. I spoke... I opened a pop concert at the O2. Thank you very much. Um kids were so gutted when it was me who walked down at the start. Right? And I had five minutes to 15,000 kids from underprivileged backgrounds. I had five minutes to talk to them about the cost of university education. And I went on, and I, I tell you, I've never prepared in my life five minutes to that audience, 12 to 15-year-olds. You know? And... I came out of it and I got a letter from a little girl, or, or feedback from the people on feedback, who said, what did you enjoy most? were proper big acts, you know. And she said, I liked the man at the beginning because my mummy had said that I would never be able to, a 12-year-old, never be able to go to university because we couldn't afford it, and he says I can, so I'm going to work harder at school. I cried my eyes out on yeah. the back of that. Yeah. But let me tell you, I got slated by the left in this country as someone apolitical, ...for appeasing the government's policy by talking to those children. You're just ignoring the the politics. And I went and spoke at Labour conference because I was so annoyed about it... ...and I spoke at all the conferences, so, you know, very deliberately. And I said to them, you have to make a decision. You have to make a decision. There are two fights here. There's the political. But be aware that you are throwing so much flame at this new system that what you're going to do is put the people off going to university who want to go there, not because of the new system, but because of what you're saying. And you have to balance out the communication and your political infighting with what will act the action the net result of what's being said in the newspapers right now. And I got a round of applause from them. And loads of people came up and said, We didn't want to say it, we've been scared to say that, that we're caught here. And so we have to make a decision in society. Yes, in this room, we should be slating to high heaven what they did in 2012. But we should be careful that that doesn't stop yeah. vulnerable, bright children from going to university. Yeah. And it's a very, very difficult balance. And I've told you my way of fixing it. My way of fixing. change the name, change the communication, put the money where it's needed, which is, is a bit
1: earlier. And of course if you do change the name and the whole temperature lowers and you don't have parents having sleepless nights over things over which they shouldn't be having sleepless nights then you can start to adjust the system in sensible ways you know without the politics being as as high profile as Would it is We drop the interest rate I thank
3: you I agree <laughs> I've got a question over here <laughs> Hello my name is Jeffers and I'm grandmother of now, <laughs> wow.
1: right.
3: three of them is voting age, so that means they're in the university arena, there's one thing I'd like to find out, where do we go from here, because some time within the next six weeks this is before the election, what are students going to do and is it something that can be done before the election, because this is a very important topic
2: um, very little the, the, the election is too late. The party, the parties are set. I, I don't think uh, Labour wants to make the only party wants to make tuition fees a political issue is Labour uh, because they have a vested interest at what happened in the last last election. Unfortunately, they've come out with a, a populist, financially illiterate policy, uh, which is which is a which is a real shame. It's a real shame because they could have done so much more, and it's it's a populist, nonsensical policy. And I I, I say that without any political bias one way or the other I certainly didn't support what happened in 2012 I mean the ultimate thing for Labour is to go for a graduate, to, I'd actually ask Nick a question if I can on the back, would you support a pure a genuine graduate tax i.e. graduates just pay 5% for 5% more tax than everybody else for all of their life that's, I mean that's
1: the policy that many on the left want, ideologically I have no problem mm. with that, the reason I'm against it is it's got three problems with it Problem one, if we want to expand higher education, we need to supplement public finance with private finance. A graduate tax is irredeemably (coughs) public finance. We're not bringing in any new private money until 20-plus years down the road when the flow of graduate repayments in net present value terms sort of exceeds what's gone out. So that's reason one. Reason two... If it's a graduate tax, the Treasury gets the money, the Treasury divides the money amongst universities, you continue the present system of central planning and you don't get the competition that I think is essential for one of the second objectives, namely quality. (coughs) And the third reason is it is a closed economy model. You can impose a tax, a British tax, only on people earning in Britain. If you have Brits who then work abroad or people from the EU who study here, get a fees loan and then go back to their own country, in principle, you can inf- and in practice to a large extent, you can enforce loan repayments. If it's a graduate tax, it's UK tax, <coughs> and you, it, 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 it won't operate in the internationally mobile economy we've got.
2: Well, It's interesting you talk about the European issue. There is a big issue with Europe I at agree. the moment. Yeah, I that agree. We, we do not collect repayments from European students in the way that we should. And what's fascinating about the government's changes is when you uncap student numbers and you say that you can have unlimited AAB, it's AAB isn't it, unlimited AAB students and you come, what happens? Well the bigger universities, or the the more prestigious universities, suck in the British undergraduates who want to go to that. So the second tier universities when there used to be a cap then say, well, we've lost our AABs. We, we can recruit as many as we want, so we'll recruit more. Where are we going to get them from? Well, we can recruit them from Europe. So, therefore, you bring in more European students, and European students are not repaying their loans because the collection system isn't good enough, because we have no real way of enforcing it. Yes, some do, some don't. But the, and that's not repaying the loans because they don't earn enough. That's not, that's, they don't repay. And people always ask me, can I leave Britain? Do I have to repay my student loan? And my answer to them is, yes, you do. You have a contract. But the truth is, if you go and live in Latin America and you never come back for the rest of your life, no one will enforce it. And so we have a real problem. If we expand student numbers and we have unlimited European Union expansion without a proper collection mechanism, then that's going to cost the British taxpayer an absolutely huge amount of money. So that's another structural issue, I think, with with the changes in the system.
1: I I am but a humble academic, so I do not open events at the O2 but I am having coffee next Monday afternoon with the head of collections from the student loans company because I've got views on exactly this issue as you say it's not an issue of principle it's an issue of enforcement now none of you can go anywhere today without leaving electronic footprints you know you say you've come back from Spain you almost certainly used a credit card or an ATM machine it in today's world, it would be much easier to police these things. It hasn't happened. It That's needs to That's not the happen. problem. I have to tell you, the issue isn't policing it. Do you want to know what the issue is? They
2: can't pay it. I, I spoke to the head of Santander Student Services worldwide about this. European students who come into this country, many of them, they go home, they try and set up a repayment system, and they actually struggle to send the money, and they give up. It's not a lack of... It's not necessarily a lack of willingness to pay. It's a lack of practical ability to pay. Uh,
1: It's that bad. I have cause to have someone in America send a dollar amount to a dollar bank account I have in Washington from my days at the World Bank. And the only way he can do it is by writing a cheque Putting it in an envelope, licking the envelope, licking the stamp, sending it to a bank 600 miles away, who then generate their own cheque and put it in an envelope and lick the envelope and the stamp and post it to the bank in Washington. It's absolutely. And, and
2: so if you were doing that to pay for a non enforced student loan repayment, yeah. how long until you stop bloody bothering? Not because you're not a good European citizen. But because you just can't be bothered. I mean, what you need... You just set up a bank account in all these countries. Every country in Europe should have a student loan repayment bank account. Where you can put a cheque in with an easily conversion system that you could... I mean, before we start enforcing it, let's at least make
1: it easy to do voluntarily. That would be step one for me. Step two is then start to enforce it. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, just to to, to, to come back to your general point about the election, the trouble... In another bit of my life, I work on pensions. And I was asked by the government of Sweden to write a report on their pension system. And it really made me very wistful. Because in Sweden, where the political culture is less adversarial than here, the political parties can get together and get and keep cross-party agreement on long-run things that matter, like pensions. And we need something like... I mean, pensions are a device for redistributing from one's younger self to one's older self. Student loans are a device for distributing from one's older self to one's younger self. They they should both be designed with long-run predictability. That requires cross-party support. Our political culture doesn't like that. What's going to happen between now and the election? I hope nothing... Um, because if anything is likely to happen it's going to be silly promises and on on the labour thing I think there is another discussion to be had there is a grain of sense it could be done in a way that might make long run sense but only in the long run, not in the short run, and time is getting short. So we could do see. a whole
2: other one on pensions, we'd both enjoy that one too. Although, isn't it actually both distribution from your middle self to your younger self and to your older self?
1: Correct, yes. As opposed yeah. to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. otherwise you could just cancel yeah, both out. It'd yeah, yeah. be easy, wouldn't it? Yeah yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, next one, pensions then. Okay, <laughs> it's a deal.
0: Great, well, that brings us to a close now. Um, I'd like to say thank you to the speakers for very lively debate and for engaging with all the questions I think fees will remain a typical issue whether you be a student, an academic or a concerned parent throughout the years coming through so I encourage you to follow the debate in the lead up to the general election just in terms of your final words, if you could see one policy emerging over the next few years, and I think you've pretty much said it, but what would it be?
1: Mine, I I mean I've, I've said this many times it's fixed the threshold at which loan repayments start, once the 2017 promise has been dealt with, and I agree with you about retrospection, it should be frozen in real terms, if not reduced, in order to bring the loan system back into balance, whereby most of the money that's lent to students is repaid in present value terms, thus freeing up taxpayer money to do much better things both for quality and for, for widening participation. I suspect yours might be different. Yeah, I, I, I don't agree with that. And I think that that would shift the balance
2: too far to the individual and too far and away from the state and would mean really high costs of going to universities.
1: Sorry, I, I, I sorry. to an sorry, interrupt, I should include in that one of the things you would do is you'd bring back some teaching grant.
2: I, where do I see it going as opposed to what I would like to see? I think it's going to get very, very tricky. We have a failed system. The system that we have now cannot last, because it was meant to cut costs. It was meant to cut costs at the expense of the psychological increase in cost of going to university of a high tuition fee, and what it hasn't done is cut costs, but it has added a psychological burden. It hasn't worked, so it has to be changed. The question is, do you change it really radically? Is there another system out there which they decide to adopt, which is a radical change because they can't admit, if, if that's if we, do, unless, if we have the present government continues, because they can't admit how big a failure it was, so we need a radical change which we haven't talked about or haven't discussed here, and a totally different way of doing it. And my concern is we will, and the whole thing could get even worse and even costlier for individuals.
0: On that positive note, please put your hands together. <laughs>